Recently, resident physicians and fellows at Mass General Brigham gathered enough votes to file for a union election. I voted yes because I've struggled to provide patients the medical attention they've needed and haven't received fair compensation for the work I put in. With a union, I believe residents will have agency to enable change within a troubled healthcare system. While many consider unionizing to be a yes or no proposition, at this moment, I suggest a third option, a pause. A one-year pause and reassessment would allow us to sift through the fear-mongering on both sides of the unionization debate, consider what has already been done by Mass General Brigham in good faith, and permit all voices to be better heard. That was Manali Nigam and David Bernstein reading from their recent first opinion essays on the unionization drive at Massachusetts General Brigham Hospital System, where they're both third-year residents. I'll bring you our conversation about the pros and cons of hospital trainees unionizing after a word from our sponsor. I'm Jesse McQuarters, branded content editor for STAT. Recognizing the breadth and diversity of America's 53 million family caregivers, how can we better know and see these important unsung heroes? Lisa Wilson, Head of Caregiver Advancement Strategy and Experience at United Healthcare, offers insights. Family caregivers are a cornerstone of our health system, but it can be challenging to support them in the moments that matter. United Healthcare is breaking down the barriers to identifying and engaging caregivers. For example, we're making it easy for caregivers to establish necessary HIPAA permissions and encouraging self-identification. The more we know about this population, the more we see them, especially early on in their caregiving journey, the better support we can provide. For more information, visit uhc.com caregiving. Welcome to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Tori Bosch, editor of First Opinion. First Opinion is Stats' platform for articles written by biotech insiders, healthcare workers, researchers, and others with interesting or illuminating or provocative perspectives to share about the life sciences writ large. Manali and David, welcome and thank you for being here. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. Well, to start, I'd like you to each tell us just a little bit about yourself, say a, a 30 second introduction. Uh, Manali, can I start with you? Uh, my name is Manali Nigam. I was born and raised in the South. I'm from Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, went to Duke for undergrad, uh, go Devils, uh, and then went to North uh, UNC, University of North Carolina for medical school, uh, and then ultimately moved up here for residency. I did my first year of um, internal medicine at uh, Beth Israel Deaconess here in Boston, and then now I'm a neurology resident, a third-year neurology resident at Mass General Brigham. Great. And David? My name is David Bernstein. Uh, I'm originally from the Boston area uh, and have lived primarily in New England uh, my entire life. I went to Bowdoin College undergrad up in Brunswick, Maine, um, and then went to medical and business school at the University of Rochester in upstate New York, uh, and also lived abroad for a year in Luxembourg on a Fulbright grant. Uh, I'm currently a third-year orthopedic surgery resident uh, in the Harvard Combined program, which is primarily out of Mass General Brigham, but also provides care at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center uh, and Boston Children's Hospital as well. 
So I'm also a little bit curious about um, two other parts of your backgrounds. And my first question is, did either of you come from families with lots of doctors or healthcare workers? No one in my immediate family uh, is a doctor. I do have extended family, cousins, uncle, um, who are medical professionals. My father is actually a pediatrician, um, and he was a general pediatrician and is a general pediatrician with an interest in vaccines and infectious disease. Uh, And my mother was a pediatric nurse for many years as well. Um, And how about unions? Did either of you come from a union family? I did not. I do not. I think that's one of the things that's so interesting about this discussion to me is is the way, you know, unions are coming to a, a totally new workforce, which is something that we'll, we'll talk on. There's just been this total explosion. Um, before we dive in, I want to make sure we're all sort of on the same page process-wise. So what is the current state of the unionization drive? Um, and listeners, also, please note that we're recording this in late April, so things may have changed a bit by the time you hear this. So we're at, let me preface this by saying that... Um, I'm a resident here. I was never part of the union organizing committee. Um, I'm a resident who ultimately, after like thinking about my own experiences and weighing out the pros and cons in support of the union, but I was not involved with the organizational side of it. Um, So in terms of where we're at now, um, Mass General Brigham, which doesn't just include Mass General um, and Brigham, it also includes a lot of 13 satellite campuses. Um, At this point, there's been enough trainees, so residents and fellows, who have signed union cards, which basically means um, that now we can move forward with a formal election. Um, So uh, there's two different paths that once, once you have enough union cards, uh, you can go. Either the organization can voluntarily recognize the union or they don't recognize it. And then you have to go through a formal election process. Um, so that's what we're waiting for at this point is that formal election process that, that trainees would have to go through. And that's through the National Labor Board. They're the ones who organize that um, across the different campuses. Um, so we have not had that election yet. Um, so, Manali, just to go back to you one more time, if we may, um, what is your quick elevator pitch for unionization right now? Yeah, I think several residents and fellows have experienced financial, moral, physical injuries while on the job. Um, and a lot of times it's felt like we haven't been able to make systemic change for some of the conditions that we're under. We're overworked and underpaid. And a lot of times we've had to try to find solutions to within to try to change the system. I think unions are one platform for us to be able to enable change. I don't think unions are just about the money. I think it's also about safer working conditions. um, And it's just about being able to motivate your workforce as well. And I actually think that with unionization, there's a certain level of legal accountability where people who are on the administration level will be able to take concerns seriously and would actually be able to make change that some of the residents and fellows um, uh, voice that they're concerned about. Yeah, And when you say underpaid, um, can you give listeners a sense of just how little residents are paid for this work? So it varies by year. Um, You get paid a little more uh, every year of training that you advance in. Um, I would say uh, so far in my training, I've been paid anywhere between like 68K uh, to like 75K. Now that I'm a third year. Which is not what people think of when they think of doctors being paid, of course. Um, Now, David, you had a different argument, which wasn't exactly a con. Um, It was a little bit different. Can you give us a sense of what you argued in your first opinion essay? Absolutely. So I think one of the first and most important things is I completely agree uh, that residents are are overworked and underpaid. I think that's an important 
um, point. And I think that's an important point that um, is certainly true, and especially in an era of skyrocketing inflation and all the challenges we're facing across healthcare, both in the United States and globally. Um, but my argument really stems uh, from uh, the idea of understanding and taking a good faith look at what Mass General Brigham has done already. And the idea behind that is a pause. And so the reason I propose a pause is while we haven't been able to make substantial progress potentially in the past. I think recently we've made excellent progress. Um, MGB has made remarkable strides and we are now going to be the most compensated uh, residents uh, in the country with free health care, which includes uncapped fertility benefits um, as well, um, uh, uh, which is not true in, in other places. And I think that all of those elements of care um, that MGB has shown, I think, were in good faith. And, and whether it was driven by the desire to stop unionization or not, I think it's hard to argue with we've accomplished a lot. Um, and so my idea is to say, look, this has been progress. Why don't we see where this progress goes? And if, if anything is reneged upon, if we move backwards, there's always the option to move forward with unionization, which is much more, um, palatable to many and much easier to do uh, than it is to to reverse it. And so in my mind, I think that's a, a reasonable step forward uh, because in my mind, we already won. Uh, and so the power that we wield comes from making progress and we've made that progress and I'm a results and outcomes oriented person at heart. And now, Manali, you acknowledged in your essay that the administration has offered some significant changes in terms, as David says, of the benefits offered, that sort of thing. Um, but you're concerned that that might not be enough. What makes you worried that just accepting what's been offered without going forward with unionization might not be enough? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the concept of like, what is what is winning? You know, I think like David say, in a way, we've already won. But I think for me, winning isn't necessarily just about getting compensation and getting more benefits. I think it's more than just having a financial incentive for people to want to unionize. So one thing I worry about is that without having a union, I worry that there's not any other forum for us to have sustainable advocacy. So what I worry is, okay, like we get this big raise now, but then what happens down the road? Um, I mean, would we actually be listened to? Or like, is this just going to be what it's like? It's like this salary and no progress further down the road. Um, what's going to happen with like some of the working conditions? Am I still ha- going to have to see like 40 to 50 patients? Like as a, you know, when you're an overnight senior or a junior and not feeling like you can provide them with adequate care, I feel like hospitals like since COVID have have just been at capacity at all times or like overflowing. I don't think what MGB has done so far really addresses the capacity issues um, and how a lot of times we're just like overburdened uh, with how many patients we're seeing. And I don't necessarily feel like I've been able to provide like the best patient care because of it. Um, So that's one concern. I think the other concern um, is that like safer working conditions. I think one of the reasons why we're seeing so many other residency programs like post-COVID unionizing is because I think COVID really highlighted how many disparities there are just within how trainees are treated. So for example, the access to personal um, protective personal equipment, PPEs, like during the COVID pandemic, trainees didn't necessarily have access to that right away. 
vaccine rollouts. Trainees were not necessarily the first ones who got the vaccine, the COVID vaccines when they first came out, even though some of them were on the front lines, like seeing patients who were COVID exposed. So I worry that um, the non-financial incentives of unionizing will sort of be thrown out the window if we don't have some way of collectively having a voice for that. Um, and I also haven't seen any other, in my opinion, um, legitimate alternatives for having a union in which resident voices can actually be like heard and have some sort of accountability to be acted upon. And I, and I think those um, are, are, I think those are, are very good points. Um, and I certainly appreciate them. I think a couple issues that I have with them is a lot of them actually stem from the idea of just hospitals in general across this country, um, not specific to Mass General Brigham and the medical education system itself, which is not something that can be negotiated through a union with the hospital system itself. I agree. I, I would I would love better working conditions and um, kind of X, Y, and Z. But I think that one of the challenges that I've had is I haven't been able to get like a specific answer on what what would that look like? Um, and it's very hard to go into, on, into a table, uh, into a negotiating room and say, we want X or we want Y uh, from like a 30,000 foot view. And I think a lot of the challenges come about as COVID demonstrated, things change rapidly. So perfect example recently is that Boston Medical Center, fantastic institution, because they have a union contract, are locked into their current salary. So skyrocketing inflation, COVID issues were not negotiated because who knew that was going to happen? And now all of a sudden you're stuck and you and your only option is to take extreme actions, which I think are not inherent to the medical field. And at the end of the day, I agree that it may be that they're only listening because we're threatening to unionize. Um, but if that gets us what we need and we can move forward, great. And if not, that's why I argue for a pause and great. If they take all of that back, we we move forward because then we need we need that voice. And so I think this is a wake up call for them as much as it is for us to try to make good progress. Like what what would you try to evaluate a year from now in terms of what would make you make a decision one way or the other? Like what would you hope to change? Sure. So I think if they don't involve residents in in changes uh, related to compensation, related to quality improvement projects, related to their community outreach work, if this is really just a one time here it is and then it kind of dies off, if they take it back and say, actually, you know what, we gave you that $10,000 living stipend. Next year, it's actually $5,000. Next year, it's actually $1,000. Next year, we actually aren't going to give you anything. Those things demonstrate that this was a one time we're going to try to stop this and not a true um, kind of helping hand to say, OK, actually, we hear you now. We appreciate it. The, uh, COVID demonstrated this. Your efforts have demonstrated this. Let's move forward. And I don't want to downplay also the importance and the and the work that's gone in to the group that has started the unionization movement. So that's one of the other things is that the effort is clearly incredible in order to start a movement such as this. And that shouldn't be downplayed. But I also at, on the on the flip side of the coin, I don't think that effort is a reason for action for sake of action. So if you if if you have a patient, for example, and that patient turns a corner, but you've planned for a different um, off-label medication use or a, a surgery that's only done at one of our institutions, and that patient actually turns a corner, just because you spent maybe a month or two months planning for this whole kind of paperwork, et cetera, you still wouldn't move forward with it, uh, in my opinion, just because. 
um, of all the effort. And so while it's remarkable effort, I think that now is the time to actually see how this plays out with the option to always go back and, and nothing's lost. I think it's tough, though, because even even pre-pandemic, right, people were having conversations at MGB um, about unionization. So so I hear what you're saying and you're acknowledging that it's taken like years effort, actually, like it's people are starting to talk about this four years ago. And we're at this point now where we've been able to like mobilize enough trainees from so many different satellite campuses. Right. And so then the idea of waiting a year and then having to reinvent the wheel, because at some point we will have an expiration date in terms of when we can actually like vote for this union, having to go through the process of signing union cards again, I think would be really challenging. And then the other thing that I think that's unique about the physician or the, or the resident physician role is there's always turnaround. It's not going to be the same group of trainees who like come in. And so you're going to have to have a whole group of people <laughs> collectively work together, whether that's like leadership, whether that's like the organizing committee. I, I, I just think from a logistical standpoint, it's going to be really tough to mobilize people if, say, a year from now, um, things haven't changed from a financial standpoint. I definitely hear that. And I definitely um, kind of hear the the concern and the, and the points raised. I would just argue that if it's such a big movement and such a big effort, and it only takes 30 percent, actually, of residents in order to sign a union card to get a vote. It does. It has to be over 50% of the vote in order to create a union, but only 30%. And in my opinion, if it's such a big effort to do that after there's an issue in the next year, that to me speaks volumes that it's actually not as heavily supported as one would suggest. Because even with turnover, that is a extraordinarily low number in order to move forward with just a vote. Within one year and just the turnover of chief residents or senior residents, it to me is a is enough time to really try to gauge what's what's true and in good faith by Mass General Brigham and what may not be, and then make that decision at that time. One point that you both made in your excellent pieces for First Opinion was that, you know, as scientists, you both want to look to the research to guide you in this decision-making process. But there's very, very little research out there that clearly states what happens when hospital trainees unionize. And I think that's partially because the movement is so new. There's just been a a huge explosion um, post-COVID. This may have been getting started pre-COVID, but that was really a catalyst for what we're seeing now. So I'm curious um, if you could give us a sense of what the research does tell us so far about unionization and what the limits of the existing research might be. There's one study that I'm aware of um, in JAMA Network Open that basically looked at the outcomes of trainee uh, and resident unionization. And in essence, it, it demonstrated that it led to no major impact from things like burnout, suicidality, quality uh, of education, et cetera. However, it did increase salary, um, and I believe it increased vacation days um, as well. Uh, and so those are the two areas where it it did make a difference. Um, I would argue that in that setting, the remarkable increase of compensation, which is one of the benefits that it demonstrated that we've received, was not prior to unionization. And it actually fell substantially short to what we were just given by MGB. I would also just say with this research, it is not the strongest research. And I'll be the it, it is not a great study. It is a cross-sectional study. 
Um, and it is it is all we have, though. And we make decisions all the time in healthcare, all the time, based on research that is not randomized. That and and I understand that RCTs are not the only study that demonstrate causation, but there is no causation research uh, related to this. So it is the best we have outside of anecdotal evidence. And it's something that I think we need to consider. Yeah, my take on this is that there is not research out there that proves one way or another to me that resident unions specifically work. There is research out there that healthcare unions like have increased benefits, increased weekly wages. Um, That particular study was also a cross-sectional study in JAMA um, in December of last year. Um, and but that one did not um, subcategorize resident physicians specifically, um, and so uh, yeah, David's right. The only study that is out there is the is the study in in, in JAMA Open Network. Um, but I think not only just the the, the cross sectional part of it was problematic to me, but also the generalizing to all residents. Right? They only asked surgery residents this question after their like mid year exam. I mean, if I was I, if I was asked to like answer questions about like burnout and like suicidality and like job satisfaction after taking my like seven hour like mid year exam when I'm so exhausted, like. I do not think I would be answering those questions like, you know, with, with the most positive reaction. So I, I really I'm not taking that study at all to face value to say one way or the other that residents do or don't work. I think that's a it's a needed area of research. My perspective is based on the anecdotal evidence that I have seen. And sometimes we also make decisions in healthcare based on anecdotal evidence as well. And it's so hard for me to ignore what other parts of the country have been able to do because they've unionized. Again, I know we've been focusing a lot on the compensation aspect of it. Um, but, you know, I, I talked to residents at different parts of the country, like Megan O'Reilly at Stanford was telling me like how she's been able to advocate for like residents with disabilities. So they've been able to like get more wheelchair accessibility, right? For call rooms, for like resident lounges. Like those are things that you wouldn't think that you would even need to advocate for, right? But they've been able to do that through the unions. David, one other argument that you had that I wanted to come back to was... Uh... Um, the role of striking when you're unionized. And can you talk a little bit briefly just about your concerns there? Absolutely. So I think one of the the core powers of a union is that the ability for workers who do not feel that they're being treated adequately and fairly to go on strike, to say this is not acceptable and this is our way of demonstrating this. Is it common? Absolutely not. But unfortunately, it is occurring. And it just occurred in uh, the National Health Service in London. And it that led to over 350,000 canceled surgeries and appointments that have impacted tons of people in England who are already behind in receiving the care that they need. And so it concerns me that at the end of the day, that that may be what ultimately may or could happen. Do I think it's likely? I, re- I really don't. But it is the it is the one big, strong push that that unions have at the end of the day. Otherwise, the union really has very little teeth because their big uh, their big um, power is to say, look, this is not fair and we're out. Um, and so um, that that does concern me. Um, but like I said, I, re- I really don't think it, it there's a huge risk of it, um, but it, it is a real risk and something that is inherent to any union. Striking is the extreme end um, of a union. It's obviously when there's been back and forth discussions and there just has not been able to be like a common point being made. 
the times that I've seen it in this country, so in the 70s, there was a, there was a large, um, you know, 21 hospitals in New York who striked in. Actually, at the, there were attendings and other medical, medical volunteers who like helped and, and stepped up while all their trainees were unionizing. So it's not like their, their patients who were in the hospital were completely abandoned. Um, UCLA Harbor, some of the LA hospitals were, were about to do it at one point, um, like more recently, but ended up not going through. I think, does it sit well with me that I would strike and go out there and like potentially be neglecting patient care? Ethically, yeah, it's, it, it's something I would really have to think about in terms of like, what am I exactly fighting for? Am I fighting for better, like safety conditions, meaning like PPEs and like vaccines? I would have to weigh the pros and cons. I think, yeah, if I'm not able to provide patient, safe patient care, I think that would incentivize me enough to go to go striking. Um, you know, if, if, if it's a matter of like financial compensation, I would I would really have to like sort of take it on a case by case basis for me personally. And when it comes to like striking. But I don't necessarily, you know, I, I agree. Like, I don't think we would do it unless there was there was a really serious contention point that we just were not able to come in agreement with hospital administration. And that actually goes back to one of the one of the one of the issues that I really haven't been able to resolve. And I've tried to talk to tons and tons of people about this and try to get to the bottom of it is what would MGB need to do today? Basically, what what would have been enough to not move forward? And the reason I ask that is because a lot of what's been proposed is better working conditions, uh, better access to X, Y, and Z, uh, and and what have you. And and I f- I feel like that's all incredibly important. But when at a negotiating table, it, it's not enough to say, well, we want to have more dignity and 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 respect, which is incredibly important, and I think is. Uh, sometimes a challenge as a trainee, um, but that's not something you can write in a contract. That's not something that you can say, yep, we we checked it off. We get more dignity today. Um, and so one of the challenges that I've come across is, is what are the specifics? Because without the specifics, they've given us things that are tangible. And, and I fear that we've now transitioned into this, um, that of the idea that we're going to unionize for the sake of unionizing to say we have a seat at the table, while important and and maybe inherently to us feels important, I'm worried that that's not an outcome that really impacts us or our patients on a day-to-day basis. And it's more just a, we've started this movement and let's keep it going. And so that's something that I, I, I I'd love your thoughts on just because I, I haven't gotten a specific we want X, Y, or Z that's been tangible enough to put into a contract. Sure. And again, I, I'm not part of the conversation. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> the organizing committee, I'm not part of that. Yes. But, yeah. but I can just say like, okay, so if I had some ideas that I would throw out there, like what are some of the yeah, things, please. right? Um, so yeah, I agree. Like, it's nice to be able to say, I want more dignity. I want more respect. Like, please like, don't let me suffer through moral injury. How do we do that? Right. So I think there's different ways. The compensation piece is like definitely one way. I also think, and you're right, David, like taking care of 80 to 100 patients, like I can't even imagine as a neurology resident, like taking care of that many. But I think a way, for example, to have an infrastructure in place where caps on certain services or caps 
for uh, in terms of capacity, like so having a maximum number of patients like per resident. And I think that would have to be like variable in some ways, you know, with within each field. But if you like hit a certain cap per resident for like how many patients you have on a service, can you create another service? They've started this at the Brigham actually for like neurology and medicine specifically. So I would say the two things that MGB has done so far has been creating additional medical services for when the medicine and neurology services like hit a certain threshold. Um, and then two is this, you know, the benefits and the the housing stipend and the compensation. But I think other ways that they can do it is just thinking about the hospital as a whole. Like, why are some of my patients like staying in the ED for days waiting for a bed? Is there a way we can like streamline that process? Is there a way that we can cap how many like patients can you know, how many patients on the inpatient services can be in the ED? Are there ways that we can sort of expedite that process? Like that's that's one thing is just like changing certain workflows of where I'm taking care of patients, how many patients I'm taking care of, I think is like one potential like tangible way to do it. The other way, and like Michigan has done this, um, is, is, is paying more when you're working holidays. Um, and then the sick call pool. Like I feel like that because of the way that COVID has been, it's like if you test positive for COVID, you have to be out of work like five to 10 days. And then it's like residents constantly have to be covering for each other. Like is there a certain formal way that we can get um, compensated or potentially like have like extra time off at the end? Like if we don't call in sick as much, I, I don't know. Like, and I don't know what this would exactly look like, what the structure would have to be in place. But I think sick call, holiday coverage, um, capping certain services, increasing workflow, um, uh, just efficiencies in addition to compensation are some things that could potentially be brought up in a contract. No, no, no. And, and I apologize. I didn't I, I didn't mean specifically you as in Manali. I meant just in, in general. I, I, I've truly tried um, actually even before publishing my piece, I tried to get a whole host of different opinions and thoughts because um, I knew it would be controversial. But I really wanted to try to really understand um, kind of all the different viewpoints. And and you raised some excellent uh, concerns and, and possibilities. I, I think one of the, the concerns that I, I still have is this is a healthcare and health system wide issue on the U.S. It's more a uh, um, it's more the U.S. health system in the courtroom than it is MGB in the courtroom being put forth as why why isn't this working? How is it this not happening? How is our system still uh, really 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 broken? <laughs> um, and so. I, I, I honestly don't know. I don't know if a union would fix those things, but I think those issues are all the issues that, frankly, hopefully we can make progress on moving forward for the sake of American citizens more than anything. I think one of the core problem, problems of our American healthcare system in general is I think from an hospital administration side of things and healthcare workers, I think our goals are different. I think from a healthcare worker standpoint, like our goal is to provide the best patient care that we can. I don't think that necessarily always aligns with sort of the business administration side of it, right? Where it's like where, where you're overturning like patients in and out. There's a lot of like monetary incentive, I think, for some of the actions that happen within hospital systems that don't align with what doctors, with what nursing, with what all the other medical staff necessarily like see would be the best for their patients, best for themselves. Um, and so I think because sometimes those those core uh, core goals aren't totally aligned. We run into these issues where, as like doctors, as residents, we feel like oh, if only they could change this, then I could provide better for my patients. But they don't have an incentive to change that because that that doesn't necessarily like you know compensate anymore, right? Any more or less. 
So I think the one thing that unions do have is a certain level of legal accountability, right? Because there's that fear that if we don't do exactly what they say, an extreme end could be we lose this workforce because they go on a strike, right? There is that there is that certain contingency that's there. There's a certain level of legal accountability where it's like our employers would not be allowed to roll back salaries. We can't get retribution, um, you know, for if we were to be a part of a union. So I think for me, the strongest argument for having a union is that there's a certain level of legal accountability that hospital administration would have to would, would they would have to accept. Um, and I think that part of it is how residents can have agency for systemic change, because there's some level of legal accountability that they have to listen to us. Looking forward to that magical time when you are no longer residents, um, what do you think, union or no union, you would like to do as attendings to support residents going forward? I think at the end of the day, I, w- I want to be in academic medicine. Uh, it's truly amazing to be around people who are just engaged and interesting and interested in making a positive difference and taking care of patients and pushing the boundaries of medicine. And I think nowhere does that happen more than in academic medicine, where you have this mesh of uh, the research and scholarly interests with clinical care. Um, from a residency point of view, that th- that kind of idea transcends into education and residency, where you're trying to understand that at some time, my time being a attending orthopedic surgeon will be over. And at that time, it is kind of on me and uh, and my colleagues to try to train the next generation of these individuals who are going to take over the field and take, take care of patients and hopefully not me, but likely at some point me. And so uh, I think it's, it's upon us to really uh, engage residents and understand the challenges they're going through and try our very best to not become disconnected from the reality that differs when you graduate and become an attending. I think that a lot of attendings really, really try to do this and they have very good hearts and they really attempt uh, this. But over the years, it is undoubtable that as you move further away from something that you once experienced, your idea of what happened and what occurred changes. And not only that, but the system changes. What I'm going through as a resident now is vastly different from what my father did in a different field, albeit, but many, many moons ago. And so that's, I think, something just to consider um, and to try to really, no matter what, support your your trainee colleagues, Um, because at the end of the day, they are colleagues and we're all on the same team trying to take care of patients as best as possible. Living through residency now, how would I see myself as an attending down the road um, once I get there? I think... Academic medicine has its challenges. I think, uh, you know, you're working within a hospital system. Um, so I don't necessarily think you have like full flexibility and like full exactly like how you want to live your life. But there's so much excitement being in an academic center where you can be part of new research, where you can be part of discovery, where there's just like a level of intellectual curiosity at like all times. And I, I have some brilliant mentors who I look up to so much, so incredibly much. And like, I, I just want to do my job. Like, I want to do my job and I want to do it well. And I don't want to deal with all this extra stuff of me not, you know, me not being compensated enough so I can like live in a high cost of living city. Um, so I can like get my health care like without like barriers so I can provide my patients like the best care possible. Like, I, I want to do my job and I want to do it well. And there are attendings who will advocate for that. I hope I can be one of those attendings someday. Um, and I would love to get to a point where like, Having a union 
just becomes more of a sustainable forum where we're not constantly asking for more and more and more and more and more. And it becomes a place where we can just like be at peace. Like that would be the dream, right? Um, I would support, I think, as an attending, like, let's say, for example, I go to another hospital and like residents want to become a union. Um, I would want to hear what their concerns are. I would want to see if there's any way that can I, when as I lead my team, can I provide a better, more supportive work environment? Is there something that I'm asking that is like too much or not realistic for a resident to be able to do um, and support as much as possible? I mean, I, I, yeah, I, I, I'm still exploring my options in terms of do I want to stay in academic medicine or not? Um, but I think the idea of staying in academic medicine, as long as um, I think that they're fair working conditions, um, I, I, you could convince me to stay. You could convince me to stay. <laughs> well, thank you both so much. This has been incredibly enlightening. Um, so thank you for being here. Um, listeners, you can find David and Manali's essays at First Opinion at STAT. Thank you both so much. Awesome. Thank you for having us. Thanks for giving this platform. I think it's really cool. Thank you so much for listening to the First Opinion podcast. It's produced by Teresa Gaffney. Alyssa Ambrose is the senior producer, and Rick Burke is the executive producer. I'd love to hear from listeners, so please let me know which First Opinion contributors you'd like to hear on the show or what topics the podcast should take on. And you can do that by sending an email to first.opinion at statnews.com. And if you have a minute, please leave a review or rating on whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. And until next time, please don't keep your opinions to yourselves. Thank you. Oh, wait. Can someone say like three, two, one, and then go vote?